the Pyramid Podcast, where three lads discuss all things English Football Pyramid. On today's episode, with moves for four players being discussed away from the club, would Newcastle have to replace them in Jan? Martial's out for 10 weeks. Do United need a new striker before deadline day? Review the midweek action, including Chelsea and Liverpool qualifying for the Carabao Cup final. We'll preview the weekend's fixtures, including round four of the FA Cup and some EFL fixtures. And we'll finish with Laura, who will talk us through Yeovil's upcoming trip to St Albans. I'm your host, Alex Murphy. And once again, I'm joined by Tom Gallagher and Tom Lawrence. Chap, start with Newcastle. And Tomo, Newcastle linked with losing uh, Kieran Trippier, Miggy Almiron, Callum Wilson. Uh, I've seen Lascelles now linked with Turkey as well. I think he can go on a free in the summer, but some teams in Turkey want him to go in January. Um, not sure all of them will go, but if they were to lose some of the players, given their kind of quite tight squad, uh, do you think they'd need immediate reinforcements? If they lost them all, then yeah, definitely. But I don't think they'll lose them all. Like um, the recent news on Bayern's pursuit of Trippier is that they pulled out basically because Newcastle want... I think it's 20 million euros. Um, yeah, there's a couple of those players, like Callum Wilson, quite injury prone, thir- in his 30s now. He's got, I think, think he's got one year or 18 months left on his contract. You can understand a little bit why they would potentially sell someone like that if it brings in 15, 20 million, which allows them to bring in a couple of players. Um I think basically the main reason for all of these this January speculation and talks etc is because the one of the um the hierarchy of Newcastle admitted about a month ago that they need to sell their players in order for um to balance the books etc etc and the reality of kind of that statement was that actually every single club in world football needs to do that and does it all the time so that statement probably just propelled a couple of the journalists to get talking and the agents to get talking. Um, I honestly, I can't really see many ins and outs. The Miggy Almiron one I thought was quite interesting because obviously the team that he was linked with in Saudi Arabia are not owned by the same guys um, as who own Newcastle. So technically according to FIFA's rules, it's legal. Um, The only issue is Miggy Almiron, Mingy Alboron has come out and said he don't want to go and says a lot really when he's getting when if the reports are true 30 million euros for the player transfer fee and obviously he'll get a massive wage increase but it says a lot that he doesn't want to go um yeah look, I, you, the, the January transfer window is always difficult to bring in um too many players so even if they did sell one or two, I think they could probably cope until the end of the season anyway. Well, this is a Newcastle team or Newcastle side who have blamed quite a large portion of their poor results for the last few months on not having the players available to be able to compete in enough games. And although Callum Wilson is a little bit injury prone, he still plays quite a big part in a lot of their Premier League games and European games when they were in it. Miguel Almiron dips in and out of form, but he's always the first choice right winger, really, but certainly above Jacob Murphy. They could do it by another one, but at the moment it's definitely him. And Kieran Trippier, they definitely can't afford to lose. Um, I think since that story's broke, it sounds like Bayern have um, pulled out of it anyway, like you just said, Tomo. But that, I think, Trippier one a little bit different because it sounded like there's no way they'd want him to go, but he's so good that maybe he attracts a top European club. But yeah, if Wilson and Almiron go, absolutely they have to replace them because they haven't coped with what they've got for the last few months. And they're sitting like in mid-table now when last season they were challenging for the Champions League. And which that's obviously what they're going to try and have to do for the rest of the season. So I wouldn't be letting anyone go unless there's racked and stacked replacements lined up, ready to come in. And I'm sure with the way that the Saudis have operated so far and the likes of Ashworth being involved with the club, you, you can't imagine they'll leave themselves short um, I don't know anything really about the financial fair play side of things, but there's still a football team to operate as well. And you can see what happens when you run out of players. It's happened to Newcastle, um, or they've been thin for the last few months. So, yes, they definitely would need replacing any of those boys if they go. I think the the trippier one, obviously, uh, sounds like Newcastle want a little bit more than what Bayern are, are willing to pay. But uh, Bayern had a match, I think it was last night, they won 1-0, uh, but Comrade Lima and Upper Meccano went off injured, so um, I know that De Litt, uh, would probably come in at centre-half for them, but I think Lima can play uh, at right-back, obviously, um, Kimmich can play in there as well, but that might just intensify that 
move for Trippier and might make them spend the extra sort of five mil that might get a deal over the line for Newcastle. The only thing with that kind of question around needing reinforcements is if the position from a senior exec at Newcastle has been that they need to sell for financial fair play, then that doesn't necessarily mean that any money banked could then go into to new sign-in. So it might be a bit of a sticky scenario there where they need to offset, but then couldn't replace and their squad's already uh, a bit thin. And we've seen what injuries have done to their form uh, over the season. And Tripp has obviously played so many minutes so far this season um, that he's even had a sticky patch of form. So um, yeah, it might not be too good for Newcastle if they do have to sell. Tom, yeah, I but like the, in, in accountancy terms and financial fair play, basically if you sell a player like Almiron for 30 million euros, you can put that 30 million euros on the books right now as profit. If you then go and buy a player for 30 million euros on a five-year contract, you split that 30 million euros over the five years. So actually you've only spent 6 million in accountancy, yeah. in accountancy terms. So that's, that's basically why you, the likes of Chelsea are selling players who are in their academy and Man City love selling players in their academy because it goes fully down as profit. Um, so, yeah, so that there are some sort of ways around the FFP rules that, that help a club if you sell a player who is who are essentially your biggest assets in your club. So, um, yeah, look, listen, they're in a difficult situation because they've got the money to be the best or to be the highest um, spenders in the world, but FFP are bringing them into line. And actually... I think it's a good thing because they will sustainably grow their club to eventually become one of the biggest clubs in the world. But if you just click your fingers like Chelsea did or like Man City did 15 years ago, then it becomes a little bit more artificial and um, I guess probably hard to, to hard to be a fan of a little bit. So yeah, interesting times for Newcastle, but yeah. I think they've kind of done that a bit already. I think their recruitment, like they've not been like sort of like going and getting the sort of Man City Rubinho or Chelsea going out and trying to buy the best player in every position. Like I think like, you know, recruitment of Trippier and then Livramento, they brought Lewis Hall in from Chelsea, Harvey Barnes, um, Bruno at the time. I know um, Tenali, Isaac, a little bit more money, but not like they're not being spoken about in sort of world 11s. They're just really good promising players from Europe. So I think their recruitment's been really smart Newcastle um, and get the point that if Almiron was to go, they could maybe like get a new player in for the same money and break it down over five years. But if they want to start in right wing at Newcastle, there's not one out there for 30 mil. I doubt that's coming in for them. That's going to have to be a summer one. It's going to be more like a trip here where you can bank 20 mil and then you just say, right, Livramento, you're now our right back and pray there's no injuries if they need to take that gamble. But um, yeah, I think what, just under a week left of the window. So see what Newcastle uh, get up to. But I imagine that will be all dependent on if there are any outgoings. One other side that um, are being spoken about in, in quite a quiet transfer window, um, United. So sounds like Anthony Martial has decided now's the right time to uh, get a issue that he's had, injury that he's had um, sorted and go under the surgeon's knife, which means he's going to be out till April. Uh, at the earliest, by which time you're down to about a month of United season. We've not got Europe or anything like that. And I imagine, unless we're still in the FA Cup, we'll be down to one a week league fixtures. So whether he's played his last minutes for United now remains to be seen. Um, but United have been kind of muted with a move for a striker the whole window, um, albeit would need to be alone, seeing the names of like Benzema just popped up, Super Moting popped up. Um, do you think, Tommy, that Martial injury might force United's hand to go into the market and get a striker? Or do you think Martial was playing such little minutes anyway that United are really in no different situation than where they were? Yeah, yeah, that second part, really. He was contributing so little anyway that his injury means absolutely nothing to me. And I assume it means absolutely nothing to Eric Ten Hag. Good riddance. He's... um. He's not really, he's not done it, is he? Um, okay, you can feel sorry for the lad because he's really injury prone. Um, but it does seem like he's got a bit of an attitude problem as well that's plagued his time at United. So, um, and there were reports a couple months ago that we were thinking about extending his contract for another year, which would have been shambolic. But no, I, just because he's injured for 10 weeks, I don't think we need to, to go in the market to replace him specifically. 
like you said, we were looking for a striker anyway. So if something does materialise that we can do that fits into that FFP budget, um, then I'm sure we'll do it anyway, regardless of Martial's fitness, because he's fucking useless. Lauro, from an outsider's perspective, obviously United linked with like two promoting. We've obviously had the likes of Vegos, we've added Gallo, we've signed kind of older strikers in Falcao and Zlat, and I know they're a different level to the ones I mentioned previously, but does it look kind of a bit farcical? United just always turn into like late loans or like older past their peak strikers in an attempt to to try and get some goals. Yeah, but needs must because you do need goals and Every single season, it seems to be that you'll get one of the older boys in, like you say, like an Agalo, and then next year's the year we're going to go. And then next year, we just don't go. Or the recruitment that comes in isn't good enough. And like we said on the last podcast, there were little murmurings that th- change is happening within the infrastructure of Man United that you'd hope that maybe this season, if you did sign a, a true promoting or someone like that, then it would just be for that little period of time. And then maybe in the summer, they'd go and sign someone. Obviously the the proof uh, will be in the pudding on that one, but I'm kind of um, at liberty to think that we just give United the rest of this season. If they are going to make those changes that like we talked about last time, because that could be the start of something really good. Um, And it's a shame for Martial in terms of his injury and probably quite a few championship sides because like I said before we came on air I think if I was Liam Richardson at Rotherham or Darren Moore at Huddersfield he'd prove I think I th- I know you're laughing because you don't think he's good enough but I think he'd be quite effective <laughs> in that league at the bottom and help those boys out of a um or certainly within that dogfight at the at the foot of the championship table so shame he's injured and uh listen maybe if it's 10 weeks that he can go and do something for a month or two at the end of the season but um yeah, I think that would be Anthony's uh, level coming coming forward from here. There's like this whole thing that we signed him for 50 mil and he was young and it was like, you know, United got that song 50 million down the drain and then he scored against Liverpool on his debut. But I think I read somewhere that it's worked out now with his injury problems, the amount of Premier League appearances that he's made, that it works out at over half a million pounds per appearance he's made. It's cost United just in a in his um, transfer fee because of how injury prone he's been, which is just absolutely mad considering the guy's probably not too far away from being offered a testimonial at the club. But that's probably been a a, a bit more of a um, a show of what United have been about with like Sir Phil Jones being eligible for a testimonial when he was at the club. Um, but yeah, be, I think this is going to be the start. As you say, Tomo, there were murmurs that we're going to offer him a new contract. We've done that consistently with players. I spoke about this. Omar Barada said you need to perform over the, the course of two seasons as a player. Otherwise, that's your lot. You're not going to get three, four, five years. And maybe that's going to be the start of that, um, starting with this summer with the likes of Martial. So, uh, but yeah, we'll wait and see what United do. I think United might go in for a striker. I think that they will want someone to come in, provide a little bit of support to Hoyland. Uh, and I think think we might get you promoting from Bayern Munich. Go on to my... Just, just a quick one on Martial to finish. So he he is a really big um, example of how, how poorly the Glazers have run the club um, in the last sort of... Well, how long has he been at the club? For seven, eight years, like you just said. Um, and if the, if the stories that you read are to be believed, the reason why he stayed at the club for so long is because he's Joel and Avram Grant's... Um, <laughs> Avram Glazer's Avram Grant is the former Chelsea bloody manager. Yeah, <laughs> Avram Glazer, um, Martial's, he was their favourite player and they were frightened to death to sell him when he was 22, 23, 24, even though he wasn't pulling up trees at United because they thought he might go on to, I don't know, go to Juventus or Bayern Munich and be a world-class striker. So they were just frightened to sell him, even though he wasn't performing for United. And... Like you just mentioned there, Omar Barada's coming in and hopefully with a bit of, and, and Sir Jim Ratcliffe as well, hopefully they've got a bit more of a ruthless streak. And if you're not doing it for United, move on. And and you see that with Manchester City time and time again. They're not, they have no problem moving players on if they don't want to be there or if they're not performing. And top clubs should should do that. You shouldn't be afraid to lose your best players if they're not performing. Um, yeah. So, yeah, that's it on Martial. Amen to that. Boys, move on to the midweek action. Obviously, had the Carabao Cup uh, semi-finals. So, Chelsea-Middlesbrough on Tuesday. Um, finished Chelsea 6, Middlesbrough 1. So, not much of a tie, actually. And I think we all 
thought that Middlesbrough might go and make that significantly harder and maybe squeak through to the final. So um, disappointing game, actually, to see it play out like that. But Middlesbrough were architects their own downfall watching that with their mistakes. There was one point from that, though, that I want to discuss with you. Um, Laura, I saw a tweet that the gap between the Premier League and the Championship's never been so big. So, you know, all three of the sides that have uh, gone up seem to be sort of down there and struggling all three of the sides that went down last year in Leeds, Southampton and Leicester, all looking fairly uh, strong at the top and will be looking to go up. Uh, the tweet basically said that the that, that gap was the biggest it's ever been. Do you, do you buy into that? Do you agree with that? Um, it, in this particular season, it, it seems that way, I think, because like we've mentioned before, the group of three that went down from the Premier League were just such huge clubs. And the three that went up, particularly like Luton, are a little bit of an anomaly. So I think in this moment in time, the three that went up compared to the three that went down is a little bit of an imbalance. But I don't think you can read into that off the back of the Chelsea-Middlesbrough game. The top six, seven or eight in the Premier League have always been by far and away better than even the rest of the Premier League, let alone the Championship. So I don't think that comes off the back of Chelsea spanking Middlesbrough 6-1. Um, but yes, we, we've talked about the imbalance being a little bit different uh, this season. But I, I would also say that the gap between the bottom of the Premier League and the top of the Championship is closer than it's ever been because of that strength of the teams that have gone down and the weakness of the teams that have come up um, without being disrespectful. So all we're talking about is the top six or seven sides again being far and away better than everyone, which they're going to be because they've got so much more money and so much more years of sort of building um, infrastructure to be huge English names and European football and all the rest of it. Um, that, that you're going to get them the likes of Chelsea beating Middlesbrough 6-1. So it was a really good result at the Riverside for Middlesbrough to go to Stamford Bridge with a, a goal lead. But um, as Dean Saunders has been proved right, they needed seven. Yeah, they did indeed. Um, yeah, disappointing for Middlesbrough. Uh, I thought their fans were class, though, actually. I was uh, watching that and they were like sing they were completely out singing Chelsea the whole game and managed to get a goal at the end as well. Um, yeah. I think it's Morgan Rogers, isn't it, who's linked to a move away. Yeah, that, that finish was, was really impressive and obviously good for the Middlesbrough fans to have something to cheer about because they actually, I think a couple of minutes before, had a goal disallowed. So you thought it would be one of those cruel, cruel nights where you wouldn't even celebrate a goal. But just quickly on that point about Championship, Premier League, the gap. At the end of the day, if you take these two these two legs, yeah, if you put them in ne next season's Premier League um, season, then... Chelsea get three points and Middlesbrough get three points. Just because Chelsea have absolutely battered Middlesbrough at home doesn't mean the gap's getting bigger. Do you know what I mean? It's just that can happen when when a top club, and actually it's probably Chelsea's best performance this year. Okay, Middlesbrough helped them out a little bit. But I think, I don't, I'm, I'm not sure if one of you boys mentioned this, but um, Chelsea had six shots on target and six goals, so... They were clinical, and that's something they've ne they've not been all year. Yeah. Also, I think that sometimes you have just got to look at the some of the players on the pitch, right? You got Saicedo and Enzo Fernandez in midfield for Chelsea, which is like two hundred mils worth, which might actually aid that cause of the gap between Prem and Championship being bigger than ever. But at the same time, you know, just because Middlesbrough have been spanked at Chelsea <clears throat> doesn't mean that there's a huge gap just based off of that result, as you boys have said. So, boys, the other semi-final, Liverpool-Fulham, so finished in a draw on the night, which meant uh, Liverpool went through. Um, I just think, Tomo, further impressed with Liverpool. Um, touched on last time against Bournemouth how, you know, no Shabozlai, no Salah, no Trent could have been a little sticky patch where they dropped some points in the Prem, went out of the cup, but um, got through again yesterday. Sounded like they were on top for, for spells of the game as well um, at Craven Cottage. And... Yeah, I heard on the radio this morning, people are talking about, can they do the quadruple? Fuck's sake. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, no, obviously not. But yeah, it was really impressive last night. I was quite disappointed with Fulham, to be honest, because you mentioned the players that they had out, but they also rested Canate, um, Jota and Alisson. So that's six of their starting 11 out, whether it's rested or injured or et cetera. And um not even speaking about Andrew Robertson, who who made his comeback last night. Um, look, they are, look, they are really, really impressive. It's not really much more you can say. It's Jurgen Klopp building a team, and I feel like this is the first season where maybe last season was a bit of a transition. This is the first season where that new team identity is 
becoming it's basically being a, a completely new team um, with a couple of the same players like your Salas and Van Dykes. But and 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 usually in those kind of team cycles, you get the the most successful periods in their two or three year cycle. Whereas this season's their first year cycle, and they've just almost um, they've they've exceeded the expectations definitely, and that's why everyone's a little bit surprised about where they are. But look, Jurgen Klopp, Simon Jordan always says this. He thinks that Jurgen Klopp's the best manager in the world, pound for pound. Because Pep Guardiola, okay, is more successful, but he's had all of the riches and the financial um, benefits from being a Man City manager. Jurgen Klopp's had to live within his means, sell his best players like Coutinho. Um, well, yeah, like Coutinho. So not really much more to say. I hate giving Liverpool praise and I really, really don't like saying this, but I really like Jurgen Klopp as a manager and... I know we say sometimes um, he's quite unlikable when they lose, but I don't want my manager to be likable when when he loses. I want him to be sort of creating that us versus the world mentality. I like that. Fergie used to do it. Yeah, I, that's a good segue because I was just going to say, and this isn't a direct comparison, but this season at Liverpool reminds me a little bit of some of those Alex Ferguson seasons whereby he didn't have the best squad and he was maybe playing Fletcher and Anderson or cleverly or John O'Shea or put in um, sort of maybe more modest players into the team, but they'd still go to Arsenal and win 1-0 and they'd still grind out another league title without having maybe the squad that they've had in years gone by. And like you've just alluded to, Liverpool have had to sell some of their best players. They've lost Sadio Mane. They've lost Roberto Firmino. They've lost Wijnaldum and uh, Fabinho over the last few years as well. And they've kind of replaced them with players that at the start of the season, we were all saying, me being one of them, they didn't look good enough, particularly in the midfield. But they're top of the Premier League. They're into the final of another cup now. And we're looking at them just winning games every single week and finding a way to do it, even when they go a goal behind, which is quite often. So, although I'm not saying Jürgen Klopp's the next Alex Ferguson, he is finding a way to win games, even though he probably hasn't got his full pump of what he maybe will have in the second or third year cycle, like you alluded to, Tom. So, uh, really impressive again from Liverpool, for sure. Uh, just one of a player who was rested last night, Tom, as well, Curtis Jones. He looks like absolutely like integral to Jürgen Klopp now. And um, I was just thinking about the upcoming international break in March. We obviously spoke about the midfield at length. I think he's a name we mentioned as like a bit of a wild card when we were discussing that a, a couple of months ago. But I'll, I'll be intrigued to see whether Southgate thinks about having a look at him in the uh, March internationals with a view of him going to uh, the Euros. I think too soon for Harvey Elliott and maybe not quite at that that level, but he's obviously playing games as well. I'd uh, I think that Curtis Jones might be a name that, that goes along in March with a, a view of does he get one of those mid, midfield berths in the summer? Yeah, I, I think he's a really good player and he's his sort of breakthrough into that Liverpool team has probably been plagued a little bit with injuries. Um, but he's always been a really good player. It was excellent for England in the under-21s, was it, in the summer? And he's taken that form into this season. The only issue I kind of have with... Um, as a Man United fan who hasn't watched him that closely, I'm not entirely sure if his best position is a little bit further forward, a little bit like Madison or Bellingham, in which case, obviously, he'll probably be behind those two players in that sort of 10 or 8 position. If he can... If Liverpool fans can write in and or, or tweet in and tell me that he plays deeper, then I would completely agree. Um, because, obviously, that deeper position alongside Declan and Rice is the one that's probably up for grabs the most. Yeah, I've just seen, actually, I was just looking to see um, like his under-21 games and things like that. But um, apparently Liverpool's kind of assistant manager sent a message to Gareth Southgate saying, get Curtis Jones in your squad and things like that. So it looks like a little bit of uh, momentum building for that as well. So, yeah, it'd be interesting to see. I'm not saying he's a starter for England by any stretch, but I, I think he'll be in one of the upcoming squads and might get his chance to go along in one of those midfield booths. Boys, move on to um, some other midweek action. So in League One, so uh, Bolton won. Uh, big result for them to to gain some momentum back at the top. There was a loss for Derby, which is obviously disappointing for us boys. But one side I just want to touch on, Laura, is Barnsley won versus Oxford. Um, I sent you boys in a screenshot, actually, that I saw, which was after Barnsley beat Oxford, they've won three, uh, won their last three games and now 11 games unbeaten. 
Neil Collins, fifth in League One, just three points off the automatic promotion places. I think they got Devante Cole as well, who's top goal scorer in the league level with Alfie May. Um, to be honest, I didn't know too much about Neil Collins' job as a manager, but it looks like he's got them flying. Yeah, but Barnsley were a really good team last year as well. And I sometimes think that, uh, under Michael Duff that was, and sometimes when the foundations are set at a club um, who went really close the year before, there's not an awful lot. I'm not saying that Neil Collins doesn't deserve a lot of credit, but there's not an awful lot of change that's needed. You just need to provide that continuity. A little bit like when Nathan Jones left Luton and Rob Edwards came in. Didn't need to do an awful lot. Just left it as it was, maybe tinkered here and there and made little improvements where he could. But I think there was a nucleus of a really good side and philosophy there that Collins has probably been able to come into and push on with Barnsley. And they're probably in... I mean, I think they were slightly better last season at this stage, but... They're nearly at two points a game, to be fair. It's just because they've got the likes of Portsmouth, Peterborough and Bolton that are also picking up really good um, runs of form at different points of the season that they're, that they're sat in fifth. But for League One, it's great because you've got probably Stevenage up who will all feel like they've still got a chance of getting into the um, automatic promotion places, particularly definitely Oxford up the playoffs and uh, and onwards. So there's six, seven teams there that I think could all change places and anyone that comes out of the pack with a proper run of form... Um, could get there. Have Barnsley gone a bit too early or are they just going to go on and be the best team in the league now? You never know. Peterborough don't seem to have lost in a long time. Derby seem to be in and out but are still fourth in the in the league. Oxford are waiting to see which way they're really going to go under the new manager. And then Portsmouth, can they return to form? So really good top six or seven in League One. Yes, Barnsley are one of the really good teams in there. They were good last season as well. So quite often if a team fails in the playoffs one year, they might go one step further this year. Will it have to be the playoffs again? We'll wait and see. Do you, do you want me to make you guys feel a little bit old? Because I was just looking at um, Devante Cole's um, recent record, I guess. And I was thinking, because he's Andy Cole's son, I just assumed he'd be like 20. And in my head, I'm like, well, he's top scorer in League League One. So someone surely in the championship should have a punt on him. But this season's his is, is, um, highest goal scoring season that he's ever had. And he's 28. But last season, he had a good... He, he had a, Good year, 15 goals in League One um, from 45 games. So one and three, that's quite a good return. And then this season, he scores 16, which is his best um, ever. And it's in 27 games, but he's 28. So I don't know if he's maybe... I know he's coming into his peak as a striker, but I don't know whether if you're a championship um, club, you want to be spending too much big money on a 28-year-old. But I just assumed he'd be 20 because he's Andy Cole's son. But no, he's nearly my age. If he's um, if he's scoring twenty five goals though, come the end of the season, if he gets another sort of nine or ten, and Barnsley go up, then he's like really desirable, right? He, a he's a championship striker with Barnsley in his own right, but someone might be like, look, twenty five at that level is a bit good to turn down. And sometimes these players in their sort of early twenties, they sort of scratch about, get five, six, seven goals, and then there's almost that like momentum, isn't there, where you have a season where you just suddenly bang. I think. Paul Mullen might have done it for someone. And then it's like, all of a sudden, you sort of banged from there. And Corley Langstaff, he was sort of down in non-league football. He's now sort of just absolutely exploded. So sometimes it just takes that season as a striker to get that confidence to be an absolute bagsman. And he might have three more years of being able to do that. So, you know, a championship side, if they if they can't get Anthony Martial, might certainly look at uh, Devontae Cole. A couple of bits of manager news in League One, boys. Um, Charlton have sacked um, Michael Appleton, and I think that this will be their third manager of the season. I think they've had about six managers in, in a couple of years now, and they're right near the bottom of League One now, Charlton. I think four points off it. And Charlton, a side that I look at as quite a big club, I mean, they're in absolute free fall, and they need to get someone in fairly quickly and fairly experienced to come seen, in and keep them up. Have you seen who's linked with it? No. Nathan Jones. Because mm. Nathan Jones done it at lower levels, isn't it? And with sort of lower level players. It's just when he stepped up to like Stoke, who we all kind of agree they had a bit of a big time squad. And then they stepped up to Southampton, who is Premier League level is completely different. So I think he'd probably do a good job there. What's his success, Loro, in management versus obviously the Stoke Southampton not doing so well? Where where did he sort of cut his cloth, Nathan Jones, and like be be looked at as a, like a, a young up and coming manager? 
Luton. Well, his first managerial appointment, I'm sure, was Luton. Uh, yeah. He was assistant manager at Brighton for a few years under the likes of like um, like Oscar Garcia. And obviously, that's a great club to sort of um, introduce yourself into coaching, if you like. But yeah, Nathan Jones's um, managerial career has been mountain tops and valleys, hasn't it? He's been brilliant at Luton, getting them promoted through the leagues um, and walked away just before the championship, uh, the championship promotion where Rob Edwards got that success, as I just mentioned. But his time at Stoke was awful and his time at Southampton was even worse. So it's so funny, isn't it, that you know that he's a good championship manager at the right club. And that's at the right club is probably a modest club that are looking for one of these fashionable kind of managers that is just a coach. Um, but because of that Southampton stint, which, by the way, was in the Premier League, he's now looking at League One jobs. Um, but having said that, Charlton's a big club, probably a little bit of a sleeping giant for League One. They're at least a championship kind of size club, aren't they? And I think Michael Apperton was a weird appointment in the first place. He's complete opposite, like a bit of an old school manager that had success years ago. Um, I don't think they should have ever got rid of Johnny Jackson a couple of years ago with Terry Skivett as his assistant. They're doing good things at Wimbledon now on a small budget down there. Um, they've had a couple managers since. Ben Garner came and went, Dean Holden as well. Michael Apperton just seemed like a really weird one. So they're going to have to get it right because they've got some good players there. They've got people scoring goals. Alfie May being one of them, obviously. And uh, they're a club that are too big to be sat in League One for too long. So a big appointment coming up. And Nathan Jones would be really good, I think, for them. They got some names linked with it, mine. They got Nathan Jones, who's odds on Tomo one to two. You then got Nigel Pearson at two to one. Michael Duff at four to one. Mark Bonner at four to one. Um, and then Gareth Ainsworth at fourteens. But um, yeah, I just wonder whether Charlton. I guess you got to appoint a manager for the future. You don't just bring an interim into the end of the season. But whether if Nathan Jones is seen as a manager who implements a style of play, whether he can go and do that now with them so near the end of the. Uh, table i did see that um neil warnock was on a um efl game and he sort of said that he's defrosting himself off for this time of the year where someone comes in and gives him a few months to save a side so i'm not sure that charlton board would do something like that like bring someone in for a few months to try and keep him up um it might be that they want nathan jones in and to build sort of a three four year plan but um yeah just whether he could get them going in the style that he wants to between now and the end of the season I was just having. I don't think you need to do that though. Like, I don't think they're going to go down Charlton. I know they're four points. Uh, they're only four points above Reading, but they are. They're still like eight teams below them, and Charlton are going to be better than at least four of them for the rest of the season. You can, especially with a, even just with a striker like Alfie May. So it might be the the reverse of that. It might be good to have someone that can come in and have not just the summer, but February, March, April, May to implement his kind of philosophy around the clubs, work out the players that he does and doesn't want. And then be able to really go for it in the summer. And next year, Charlton might be a better kind of beast for it. Um, so unless you're really, really worried about relegation at Charlton, I don't think you need like a troubleshooting manager like a Neil Warnock or a Sam Allardyce. And I don't think they're in that position personally. Yeah, I I think you're probably right, Laura. I think they will go for Nathan Jones. But nice. I mean, I suppose Charlton is a big club, but, you know, Michael Duff, obviously we know about his successes. Um, Nigel Pearson, Gareth Ainsworth, Mark Bonner, all kind of big names there. But I suppose the Charlton job's quite a big job for a EFL manager. Um, League two action, boys. So just a couple of games just to, to reflect on. So Mansfield drew one all with Sutton. Mansfield only got one win in five now. And I saw someone um, tweet actually about the Mansfield result saying that this is their sort of time to come out as they always do and say the points on the board is better in games in hand. And we touched on the last pod, didn't we? That it always seems like teams have got chances to go to the top with their games in hand and then don't take it. Um, and that's happened for Mansfield again. I think Sutton down in the relegation zone is a terrible point for Mansfield and they're in no sort of form. Uh, and MK Dons beat Wimbledon 3-1 as well um, in that, that sort of derby game. But Wimbledon, without their main man, um, he's out in the uh, Asia Cup. Um, and I think Iraq finished top of their group, actually. I think they beat Japan to top of their group. Um, know, I, was just, I was just thinking then, we should do a, um, like, uh, <coughs> try and get a Wimbledon guy and an MK Dons guy on, on the podcast to try and um, figure out exactly what happened there. Because I'm just picturing... Yeovil getting moved from Yeovil to I don't know how far is it away? Two hours. Yeah. So it would be Yeovil to Surrey, and then be called something completely different. Yeah, like the MK Glovers, and then you've got AFC Yeovil starting up again in Yeovil. But I suppose that's why MK Dons is 
stadium sits empty for every league game. Yeah, yeah. Um, no real fans there. Right, boys, let's look ahead to the weekend action then. FA Cup uh, round four. I know that last time we spoke about how nobody wants to see Liverpool versus Arsenal again. We see that already in the Prem. But, Tomo, you rightly said the, the amount of viewing figures that that did pull in in the end as a massive game. Tottenham versus Man City is actually one I'm quite excited about. And apparently, if um, if rumours are to be believed, James Madison and Haaland both back in full training, so likely to feature in that. So that could be a decent game. And I always picture Tottenham as a side who seem to have one up Loro on Man City. I think there's been some big occasions where they've picked up some big results against them. So that could be a pretty uh, tasty tie. I mean, it depends what kind of um, teams that... That they both put out, but I always fancy Tottenham against anyone under Ange Postecoglou because he plays the same way every time. So um, we know it will be a good game. We know that there will be goals. We know it will be entertaining. And uh, I still don't think feel strongly enough to say that you'd expect Spurs to win. But at least it's not one of those games where you think City are just going to be walked all over, uh, walk all over their opposition, which is ninety nine percent of the time. So at least Tottenham provide a bit of spice and a little bit of. Uh, um, optimism that we could get a, get a good game when that kind of fixture comes up. Can I just provide a little um, back into Pep Guardiola as well? Because I know Man City have the luxury and the strongest squad um, probably in the world, but definitely in England. Um, but he always takes the cup competition seriously. And it's easy for us to sit here. Well, we spoke a couple of weeks ago, didn't we, about the FA Cup losing his prestige, etc. Um and you could probably definitely say the same thing about the Carabao Cup, but City and Pep Guardiola always play a very strong eleven, whoever they play. So I fully expect them to play um, their strongest, if not a couple of changes here and there. And look, I, let me caveat that whole point with the fact that look, they do have the luxury to start a Grealish and drop and, and rest a Doku or or start Alvarez and rest Haaland, and, and it still looks really strong, but. He's always taken the cup competitions very seriously. So I fully expect them to go to Spurs and um, with a full strength team, really. Yeah, see KDB in from the start, I reckon. See him uh, back and firing and maybe feeding Haaland. Tomo, Newport versus Man United. So obviously Newport, um, we spoke last time, beat Wrexham in the uh, in their Welsh derby game. Um, United obviously had a little bit of a winter break, although if rumours are to be believed, apparently we lost a behind-doors uh, friendly at Carrington to uh, to Burnley in the week. But um, do you expect Eric Ten Hag, like the Wigan game, to go strong side away at Newport as well? Absolutely, yeah. He knows that he's... His, um... Job is in a precarious position given ownership changes and everything that goes along with that. Um, Eric Ten Hag, the, the, everything I just said about Pep Guardiola, to be fair, Eric Ten Hag similar, but I don't know whether that's just because Ten Hag doesn't really have faith in in the the squad players and the youngsters like a, um, a Guardiola might have. Um, yeah, Newport and look, Newport seven on the bounce they're unbeaten and they're at home so they, they'll be well up for it um but yeah like you say fully expect man united to win it, it's interesting I, I wanted to tell this fa cup story actually i heard it on um another podcast that's very good if any of our listeners listeners want to um catch another podcast which is called the upshot and um they were telling this um fa cup story um from west ham versus Kid kidderminster and I think it was at this this time, the, the the fourth round, they faced each other a couple of years ago and um, West Ham scraped through a 2-1 win and it was a really, really good game. And um, the manager afterwards in, in his um, his post-match interview, he was like, oh, it's such a great occasion for the lads. Um, it, it's so good. And, and, and Declan Rice is in there having a shower with the boys now. And I'm just picturing, yeah. And I'm just picturing Declan Rice going in there, going into the Kidderminster changing room, shake, shaking all the boys' hands and then going, oh, do you know what? I'll have a shower of you lot because you played so well today. <laughs> How random's that? He did score the winner in that game, Declan Rice. I remember watching it and it was a good finish late on into the roof of the net. And the scenes from West Ham fans away at um, Agborough where Kidderminster play was a testament to how good Kidderminster were because you shouldn't be needing a last-minute goal with it being limbs when you're a Premier League side against, at the time, a National League North side. Um, so, yeah, I remember that game and nice little story. And that's Declan Rice all over, isn't it? Hopping in the showers with the Kidderminster boys. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, the Kidderminster manager at the time, Russell Penn, 
did a great job there, got them promoted, and he's actually just been replaced by good old Phil Brown, uh, who's been brought in to try and sh- troubleshoot a relegation dogfight in the in the National League. So, only got a couple more years out of uh, Penn at Agra there, but lovely story, Tigo. Thanks for bringing that onto the podcast. Yeah, I'm not sure if like someone had just scored the winner against us, and then he came into our change room shaking his hands and just got his Corey out and was like, "Right, I'm going to have a shower with you boys. It would go down too well with many other sides." But fair play to Declan. Yeah, but if you're a Kidderminster player in like 15, 20 years' time, when like Declan Rice has won Champions League, Premier League, Ballon d'Or, World Cup, Euros, you can at least say to your kids that you've um you've seen his Corey. Yeah, I mean, you might go more that. I played in the FA to your grandson. Oh, I played in the FA Cup, mate. I used to be a really good footballer. And remember Declan Rice, who lifted the Euros? Yeah, I played against him. He scored the winner against us in the last minute, rather than I managed to have a look at his old boy. But <laughs> anyway, yeah, nice story, Tiga. Uh, a couple other fixtures from FA Cups. So West Brom versus uh, Wolves. I put a big rivalry um, with a question mark and did some digging on it. I didn't realise quite how, how big it was, but just a few points on that derby. So 140-year rivalry. 70 years ago, Wolves were in a title race with West Brom. Wolves went on to win the title and West Brom won the FA <coughs> Cup. West Brom sold Steve Ball to Wolves, who uh, went on to become their biggest ever scorer. Scored about 300 goals, I think, for Wolves. Um, and then in an FA Cup tie that happens, uh, because you get 15% of the gate as a away side, Wolves gave some of their popular South Bank uh, part of the stadium to West Brom fans, who at the time, do you remember the old Tesco value used to be blue and white. They got all um, carrier bags from Tesco's and put those Tesco value bags over the gold seats so they look like West Brom seats. And um, Wolves to like uh, appease their fans who were having to move from the sort of South Bank area to host the West Brom uh, fans were given like a pie and a pint um, coupon basically to get that. And it all kind of stemmed from there. Um, but yeah, massive tie. I didn't realise there was so much hatred in it. Tomo, did you say that it's been moved from half five on Sunday or half five on Saturday to 11.45 on the Sunday to try and kind of police it and keep trouble to a minimum. Yeah. Yeah. So obviously you've got the um, the fans, I guess pubs don't open till 11, do they? But maybe they'll have a couple of locals who open at 6am so they can get stuck into one. But I didn't realize, I didn't know about that, um, that Tesco bag um, situation. You said that reminds me of last, the last round when Sunderland painted their bar black and white to <laughs> to help or to appease the Newcastle fans. So, look, that almost goes to show how poor that Sunderland decision was because they've got an example of how it didn't work in the past with West Brom and Wolves. Yeah, I must caveat, West Brom fans turned up with the bags and put them over the seats. Wolves oh, okay. couldn't make them feel at home by wrapping Tesco bags <laughs> around their uh, Molyneux. Yeah, my mistake, sorry. <laughs> but no, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely huge game. I think it's um, uh, Tom Tom Garrett, who's a West Brom fan. He's been absolutely like buzzing about that fixture on social media. I think Wolves were in a um, replay against Brentford, I think, and he was absolutely desperate for Wolves to get through for that. And it sounds like uh, West Brom have got the number on Wolves, uh, even though Wolves have been a bigger side for, for a number of years now. Um, I saw something actually, it was like West Brom fans were trying to downplay the fact that they'll probably lose to Wolves, who've obviously got a lot more money now, by saying, look, we're in the playoffs, we want to concentrate on that, we're not interested in a cup run, whereas that's all Wolves have got, because they're not getting Europe, they're not going down, so they they need this FA Cup run. So they're already trying to like set the scene for if they do lose. And um, Adrian Charles, who's a big West Brom fan as well, he's basically said, oh, as long as it's sort of like only 2-0, uh, that wouldn't be the end of the world, we just don't want to be embarrassed. So uh Fans already setting their stool out there for uh, for potentially losing. Can I just um, just any any West Brom and Wolves fans who want a bit of advice um, for how to be tanked up for eleven forty five on a Sunday? Just go straight through. Go out on Saturday and don't go home. <laughs> yeah, advice from Tomo, uh, not from the pod as a whole. Just uh, yeah, could be some implications from doing that. Uh, one other tie to touch on in the FA Cup, Ipswich versus Maidstone. We obviously know about uh, Ipswich, what they're doing and flying under Kieran McKenna. Laura, you touched on before um, the the manager there and the job that he's doing and, you know, deserving of a big tie. Haven't got a big Premier League game, but Ipswich obviously a big side for Maidstone and they're, they're right up there in Yobel's League, aren't they? I think they're still fourth, aren't they? Yeah, they're right up there. Where is that tie? Is it Portman Road or is it yeah. at Maidstone? Portman Road. 
Well, so it's still a nice big stadium that has been a Premier League stadium before for them to go and visit, isn't it? And uh, it, that'd be a great day out for the Maidstone fans. And you never know, maybe they'll fancy themselves. Um, they have just signed another striker in the form of Mo Fowl, who is quite a good centre-forward with a decent reputation in the National League South, albeit I know Ipswich are in the Championship, so it might be difficult to put them away that day. But they're a good uh, outfit, Maidstone. They're well-coached. George Adekobi, we just talked about Wolves. He's a bit of a legend. I think he was a left-back there, wasn't he, for years and, uh, yeah, I'm glad they've got a big day out. But, listen, if they win that one, then that's a massive story for the FA Cup. And hopefully they'll start to get behind the Maidstone or jump on the Maidstone hype train even more because uh, they'll deserve it. And then they'll be in the fifth round and then they'd be really unlucky to miss out on a Premier League side. So, up the Maidstone. Look forward to that one. 25-1 to 1 to win as well in Ipswich. You know, McKenna might be thinking we don't want to lose one of our key players to injury in a... Uh run into a tight um sorry a promotion charge to the Premier League so might be worth having a little look at Maidstone at 25 to 1. Not that our tips are anything to go by. Yeah. Um there are some EFL action as well boys. Uh one game uh, I think there's two games in the championship but one game just touched on Sunderland versus Stoke. We've obviously spoken about um Michael Beale the pressure he's under and must win. But Laura I believe uh, you're in touch with a, a fan of Sunderland who's um called into the pod to to make a SOS call to the club to sign a striker. Yeah, he has. I've had a um, a disgruntled Mackham WhatsApp me saying all they want is a couple of strikers that know the league or at least know the country because they keep signing kind of foreign boys, no disrespect, that are taking too long to get their feet under the table and they're not providing anywhere near as much kind of form at the top end of the pitch as maybe Ross Stewart was before. Um, I did offer Joe Gellhart services, but he rightly said he went there last season and wasn't able to score either. He mentioned the likes of Hardy and Whitaker at Plymouth. Um, I mean, Morgan Whitaker, I think, will be in line for a Premier League move quite soon, considering the amount of uh, or how well he's playing at Plymouth. But there are other strikers in and around that kind of bottom half of the Prem, maybe top half of the um, championship where Sunderland might be aspiring to sign someone from. And I just thought it was quite interesting because we think about them as a free-flowing type team at the moment that score quite a few goals. And maybe that, you know, with your Clarks and your Roberts and your Bellinghams, maybe that lack of centre-forward is the thing that's going to stop them, or if they sign one, allow them to get into that playoff mix. Yeah, indeed. There's nothing quite like a Mackham, is there, to be like, let's just sign a big English centre-forward. Very much Sunderland uh, fans. But yeah, wait and see what happens for them. Um, I think they do need to delve into that market and they definitely, definitely need three points at home to Stoke um, if you're Michael Beale. Some other fixtures, boys. League one, league two action. So some of the sides are obviously in um, FA Cup action, but Portsmouth go to Port Vale, Bolton go to Carlisle and Peterborough go to Lincoln. So all uh, away fixtures for them. But Derby and Barnsley are at home in league one. Uh, in League Two, Stockport go to Doncaster, Mansfield are at Wimbledon, uh, Crew host Salford, and then a big game in the playoff race for League Two, Notts County versus Barrow, fifth versus seventh. Um, no game for Wrexham. They're in the FA Cup, I think. They're on Monday night, actually, against Blackburn. Um, so a chance for some League Two sides to, to gain some ground on them. Laura, come to you now uh, for Yeovil. So Yeovil were meant to have a midweek fixture um, but I think it was called off because of the weather and got an uh, away tie uh, this weekend coming up. Yeah, up to St Albans, who were managed, I think still managed by David Noble, who's a, an ex-Glover, ex-Bristol City player, ex-Arsenal Youth Academy player. Um, played really good football. One of the best football insides I've seen at Hewish Park this season. I think they missed out in the playoffs last year, either in the, I think it was in the final. And uh, that'll be another tricky game. And... Worthing drew midweek, which meant Yeovil's lead was cut to only 12 points with two games in hand at the top of the National League South. So hopefully we can get back on the horse and uh, maybe make it what 15 points clear at the weekend if results go our way. So I'm not going to that one, um, but I wish the travelling Glovers Brigade a nice day out and hopefully it'll be another three points back to Hewish Park. And unless I'm um, losing my mind, we haven't touched on Leeds, have we yet? No, you're right, we haven't. That was meant well, to be after the uh, Carabao Cup. Let's touch on their game against Norwich. I just thought maybe we could finish on Leeds for a change because they've actually <laughs> recorded five consecutive wins at the start of a calendar year for the first time ever. And if there's any time to hit form, it's in the new year, it's particularly when it's so tight 
at the top of the championship with four teams looking for two places. And a lot of coverage, I feel, recently has gone towards the likes of Southampton and uh, maybe even Ipswich in a negative way. But Leeds, I'm quite happy about the fact that we're going under the radar a little bit. And Patrick Bamford scored four and five. Even Ampadu has dropped back in to centre-back um, in Pascal Strout's absence. And I think he's got like four out of five clean sheets. So things are working for Leeds at the moment. And when we've got the likes of Joel Pirro on the bench, uh, the likes of Willie Nonto on the bench, Jade Nantony, et cetera, and the boys that are starting to do in the business, you know, we're, we're a massive, massive, in with a massive chance of getting one of those automatic promotion places. And I think it's just exciting for a neutral, really, to watch how that unfolds. But well done to Daniel Farquhar Leeds because we did have a bad loss to Preston on Boxing Day. And since then, we seem to have really turned a corner and uh, obviously got our shit in gear. And that's 16 matches unbeaten at home now this season. I mean, great for you that we started the pod this year, right, for Leeds and Yeovil. If we'd have done 22-23, it would have been a lot more miserable yeah. for you. This is some year for you as a uh, Leeds, Tottenham and Yeovil fan. Uh, <laughs> boys, <laughs> uh, boys. so finish up with uh, Trivia Corner. So I asked on the uh, Monday pod to name the four pools who've won the Premier League. Just before we reveal the answer, how did you uh, boys fare with that? How many out of four for you, Tomo? Three. Three. I couldn't get the last one, but three, yeah. Um, Look, do you want me to name them or? Well, I'll just see how Laurie got on. Same. <laughs> yeah, right, we'll go, go on, Tommy. You name them. You name them for us. Um, Paul Parker. Yeah. Um, Paul Ince. Yeah. I'm just having a look at... <laughs> I forgot the other one. Um, for God's sake. John, I mean, the, the great... The greatest ever centre mid for United in England. Uh, Lampard didn't play for United. Yeah, Paul Scholes, Christ. And then, um, yeah, I couldn't get the last one, so Murphy will have to enlighten us. Uh, it was Paul Warhurst, a uh, bit of a, uh, a seasoned veteran around uh, around the EFL, but he was at Blackburn in 1994-95 to, to uh, pick up a winner's medal there. Just to say some shouts that we had in, uh, Paul Merson, no, didn't win it. Paul Pogba, no, didn't win it. Paul Pesky Salido, no, did not win it. Only the four of them. So uh, if you got four out of four, well done. Uh, I think you cheated if you did. Um, but yeah, good uh, good effort. I think anything uh, above two there was a, a good result on that one. So um, boys, I don't know which one of you want to go next, but Monday be back with a uh, another trivia question. So get your thinking caps on and uh, yeah, we'll revisit that on Monday. Boys, that's all we got time for. I say we'll be back on Monday. We'll review all of the uh, action from the FA Cup, EFL. We'll uh, obviously have the next trivia question and also hopefully the uh, transfer window would have ramped up and we'll have some uh, transfers to talk about. But boys, pleasure as always. Have a great weekend. Cheers, boys. One, two, three.